Here we are again, Munitions Podcast coming at you from my studio. Derek DeBras coming at you from his studio. Uh, it is October 30. That's one day before Halloween. What a great day to be talking about guns and all sorts of Well, maybe not. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Derek, how you doing, man? Oh, busy as ever, but we're, we're doing good. So we are Munitions Podcast, and you can check us out at munitionspodcast.com. We do have a website in, it's like, it's on the, it's right on the verge of, of launching. It, now it's just about uh, uh, some final editing and it's there. Derek, you also have your YouTube channel and I understand you've been pretty active with that. Yeah, we just uh, relaunched it for everybody that's listening, and some of you might have already seen uh, two episodes or one and a half, technically, that we posted. Working on the lighting, working on our studio at, at, up in the Dublin office, uh, but it is got some content. I've already recorded about six new episodes with some of my law partners, so you'll see some new faces. Uh, some of it will be geared toward the industry side of things and regulatory side of things. I'm doing right now a whole series on restoration and doing a deep dive on that, so a lot of exciting things coming. All right. Awesome. Well, we have another guest back in the studio, a, a returning guest, Willie Franklin. You were here with uh, you guys. There was three or four of you came down here before with the gun club. Absolutely. Unity, Unity, Unity gun, gun club. club. Yep. What's it called? Unity. Gun Unity club. Gun club. Unity Gun Club. And anybody who has some, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about it and then we'll sort of refer people back to the old episode and they can check that out. Excellent. We were here uh, back in April and it was delightful to join you and Derek here in the studio. Yep. Uh, Unity Gun Club was founded by a couple of gentlemen that I've gotten to know very well, uh, black gun owners who were enthusiastic and remain enthusiastic about black gun ownership, but didn't find representation locally. So, you know, if you can't find it, you build it yourself, right? Absolutely. And that's what they have set out to do. But it is a very inclusive gun organization. So while the focus is there and designed to address that narrative of black gun ownership, it is open to any and everyone, regardless of racial identity. Yeah. And that was, that was sort of the neat thing that, well, one, the, the thing that surprised me and then the neat thing about what it was doing, it was that um, one, whoever your founding guy was, I forget all the names now, but he had trouble because he wanted to bring white folks too and black folks, or actually maybe not care so much what you were. Exactly. And just share the enjoyment of firearms and couldn't find a place to do that. Exactly. Um, and, and and that's why Unity came along, right? Quite, yeah. quite the reality. And and the name is apropos. Yeah. Uh, because I think that begins to immediately remove any opposition of what the gun club is all about. Yeah, it's just uh, people enjoying guns and it doesn't matter who you are. So. Exactly. Um, anyway, you're back again and we're going to talk, uh, well, we're going to talk about all sorts of stuff. So Derek, why don't you take us, uh, start us off and we'll, uh, we'll get sure. moving along. Well, I actually thought about you, Willie, you, you, you popped up in one of my classes. I think yes, it was I over did. Blackwing Shooting Center. How do you think? What'd you, so everybody knows my listeners I actually teach on a regular basis at Blackwing Shooting Center in Delaware, Ohio. I don't teach just concealed carry. I teach a broad array of gun law topics. I think it's a more unique way to approach the teaching of gun law. What did you think of it, Willie? I thought it was fantastic, that aspect of gun law. Uh, for me, it's important to have that higher sense of awareness as a gun owner of uh, just not stepping into the arena of gun ownership um, out of, a, I don't know, fascination out of a notion of a hobby, but making it a realistic responsibility in the everyday sense that not only am I training myself on firearm operation, but I'm also making myself and others that I talk to aware of some of the local gun laws, particularly in central Ohio. Um, I travel a fair amount when it comes to camping. So for me, remaining aware 
of that firearm in transit, knowing that Central Ohio laws aren't exactly the same as, say, New Jersey laws, Pennsylvania laws, Indiana laws. Um, so attending your class was a real eye opener. While you did not touch upon all of those interstate municipalities, it was concrete information on the do's and don'ts from a gun ownership uh, standpoint. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, so you mentioned camping. You so you're an avid camper. I am as well. I am. I'm a uh, tent camper. Uh, okay. At some point, I might migrate to a camper, but right now, still <laughs> very comfortable sleeping on the ground. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. But that takes you a, through different states, different jurisdictions, different localities that all have different sure. laws, per, at least potentially. It does. It does. I, uh, uh, I'm i actually a backpacker. Um, I've, I've backpacked the John Muir Trail, I've section hiked the AT parts of the PCT, and mm. Continental Divide Trail, I've hiked out in uh, New Zealand and other countries. And uh, the thing with backpackers, at least, I don't know about you, Willie, I don't carry a gun, not so much as the, because of the law, because it's too damn heavy. <laughs> it's too much weight to carry at altitude. So, uh, and, and out West, I generally don't have, I'm not too concerned with my safety. Now the Appalachian trail can be a little, yeah. a little bit sketchy. Sometimes there's been murders and stuff on the trail. So yeah. um, maybe I'll start carrying a gun on the AT. I'm not certain about that, but um, that's great. I'm glad you, you go camping. That's, that's phenomenal. I, sport. I do. And, uh, and the reason I pack a firearm camping, I love remote camping. Uh, so my wife and I are no strangers to going up on a mountain. You take everything you need. There's no running water, no electric. Right. Uh, it's just you. And the other part of that, uh, I mean, yeah, there's a the potential of a human threat out there. Uh, but we're also concerned about self-preservation when it comes to large animals, particularly sure. cats. Uh, bears tend to become aware of you pretty darn quickly if you're noisy, although we're not obsessively noisy. Uh, cats tend not to really care who you are, where you migrated from. If they target you, well, you know, it's you've got to figure out how to avoid that confrontation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so really, it's from a safety standpoint, uh, more animal, not so much the human animal. So yeah. how, old do you, how old were you when you first picked up a firearm? Oh, gosh, I was into my, well, I was going to say I was into my adulthood, but actually the first time I fired a firearm, I was perhaps 10 years old. Um, I have five older sisters. And one of, in fact, it was my eldest sister, her boyfriend at the time was visiting and allowed me to fire his revolver. Um, It was a significant experience because I had never held a gun at that point. And I couldn't even begin to tell you what it was. I only knew that it shook my shoulder as though I'd been tossed from a pickup truck. Uh, hmm. I mean, I felt it all the way through my body and and stepped away from it. Later in life, uh, uh, my uh, then wife, father, upon his passing, we inherited his firearms. Uh, at the time, we had a small child at home, so the firearms were actually kept in a gun safe at a friend's house, who was a Columbus police officer, now retired. Uh, but that was my introduction into firearms, um, hmm. picking those instruments up, going to the range, shooting, reading, and shooting more. Um, over time, I've become an advocate, a gun enthusiast, as I've read more, as I've shot more. Prior to, I think, my introduction into Unity Gun Club, it was truly recreational. Um, and maybe people can say that often about gunners. It's recreational shooting. Yep. But there wasn't a desire to, it wasn't a commitment to learn, to improve skill, to be mindful of groupings, uh, to be mindful of recoil management. I just bought the rounds, 
went out, tore up paper, and was happy for the time out on the range. Now it's all about improving each time I go out. Uh, and in fact, the last uh, month and a half, I've participated in two USPA, USPSA shooting competitions. Talk about a joy. Now, are you shooting fun, uh, yeah. handguns, long guns? Uh, handguns in this case. Yes. I was just uh, pheasant hunting on Saturday. Uh, I would have invited you. I completely forgot to. Um, next year, though, we go every Halloween weekend if you're ever interested. I am interested. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll, we'll get out there again. Yeah, we, you know, we should all get out. We can bring your whole group out. I have, uh, I've got a lab. He's a pointing lab, and he does a okay. great job in the pheasant field. We'll have a blast. Okay. We'll have a I blast. love it. So, uh, Willie, I'm kind of curious, you know, of all of our guests, give us your background, I guess, from a uh, philosophical and, and political standpoint growing up. Uh, for instance, from for myself, I wasn't allowed to have guns at all. I wasn't allowed to touch them. My dad had a couple rifles. He never, wasn't necessarily espousing anti-gun policies to me, but guns just were something I were, was not allowed to have. So as soon as I turned 18, I about four. Okay. Um, so what was your background <laughs> like in that area growing up politically and philosophically? Good question. Good question. Um, I grew up in the deep South, um, Southwest Georgia, uh, Albany, in fact. So for me, firearms was kind of a white ownership thing because that's what I saw, uh, typically displayed in the back of pickup trucks on the racks, things of that nature. So growing up, my awareness of firearms weren't first person. Um, I can't tell you from memory, anyone in my family that I could recall who owned a firearm, who displayed a firearm. Um, it was much later in life that even one of my uncles, when we were out on our grandparents' property, and, and he brought out a rifle shooting across the cornfield, was the first time I've seen any member of my family with a firearm. So it was always very foreign to me from that standpoint. From a philosophy standpoint of firearm ownership, I never looked at it as an aspect of entitlement um, holistically. And, and, and by that, I, I, I mean, I felt it was available even at that young age to anyone. But for some reason in my community, community of color, it was seldom seen. It's only later in life that I began to become aware of what that difference was, why essentially it was there, and why it had gone on so long. Um, and you're referring specifically to the difference between whether people of color could have had guns, generally speaking, and white folks having guns, generally speaking. Absolutely. And just your your youth was, you just knew that the white people had the guns. Exactly. And exactly. Now you've looked back and sort of did, unpacked why. Mm -hmm. and, and that was really a passive awareness. Again, you know, I'm a kid on the street. I'm seeing traffic go by and just happen to notice a rifle um, mounted on the back or held and a back rack on a pickup truck yeah. and that pickup truck being driven by a white male or a white female. And, and that was the consistent image in my youth, whether they were passing down the street or we were out shopping at a grocery store and that vehicle is parked on a lot. Mm -hmm. That was the reality in which I saw. I, I never saw that reality even out in the country as I went to visit cousins, um, in-laws, things of that nature. Um, I, I didn't see that within the black community uh, ever on display. Um, so going forward, recognizing the history of black gun ownership in America, it now 
makes more sense as to why it wasn't so prevalently displayed. And that is to say that if you were black and owned a gun, you typically didn't display it, uh, particularly <clears throat> in the South, if one were to roll the time back to the 60s, 50s, and beyond, because it may very well have been viewed as an act of open aggression. So like um, in the old Jim Crow South. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's a, there's a night and day difference now with regards to gun ownership and awareness that ownership of a firearm doesn't have an exclusion by ethnicity, by gender, uh, and I wouldn't say by age, but, you know, we see kids who are joining their parents on the firing line at a range, gaining knowledge, gaining expertise, gaining exposure, uh, developing a sense of safety, the do's and don'ts. Um, That's an everyday reality uh, that I'm not only seeing it in the form of YouTube videos, but I'm also seeing it in person when I visit uh, gun ranges. Uh, That was not the case growing up. We didn't have YouTube back then, but we also, I also didn't see anyone in their youth firing a gun at any point in their life um, in my frame of view. Now, granted, that's a narrow spectrum, right? We only have our personal experiences as our frame of reference until we get older and we expand our world view. Um, So that's the reality to which I'm coming into this conversation. Now, now, if you research whether there were actually laws on the books in the Jim Crow South that would have precluded black ownership of firearms? Um, that's the toughie. Um, yes and no. I say yes and no because I'm trying to recall the specifics. Um, yeah. Part of the challenge of that is if, if one says legally that gun ownership is the right of every citizen of the U.S., you know, that feels rock solid. But when one also says that black people in this country aren't full citizens and you exclude that large population from citizenship, you also then exclude that large population from gun ownership. Sure. So a, a part of that becomes very real uh, in the history of America and gun ownership in the black community. Um, as I think Back with regards to uh, lynchings, with regards to racial violence, there is clear evidence on the part of lots of authors, on the part of lots of documentarian, that there were hordes of lynches that were avoided because the, the intended victims, blacks in this case, Hispanics or Indian Uh, Asian had firearms to defend themselves, basically were able to stop that aggression. Um, Again, if one asks, was that legal with regards to gun ownership? The answer is probably no for that population. For that population at that time. But if you're coming after me and my family, are you coming to argue my legal stance of gun ownership? Or are you coming to just simply seeking seeking to take my life, uh, to which I'm making a hardened stance. Well, look, it's an, it's an interesting, it it gets, I'm thinking this throughout loud as I often do on these shows, because you're, you're sort of, you're talking about something almost akin to natural law. 
Like yeah. we have, and that is the basis of the Second Amendment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it was almost an it was unnatural. Look, slavery was unnatural. Um, and then at the what you're saying is a natural offshoot of slavery. We, they weren't citizens, therefore not by definition could they have guns. So the Second Amendment or whatever didn't apply. Um, but it, it it's almost like it, it sort of reflects how unnatural all that was. And it also emphasizes that the the right to protect yourself, the right to self defense, the right to and to use whatever means you need to when mm-hmm. firearms. Um, is is sort of one of those inherent inalienable rights, and that's why we have it now. Absolutely. And, and now that we've shifted to this sort of historical text and tradition analysis, um, it sort of makes that point even more uh, obvious. So it's it's sort of fascinating juxtaposition that that those who are dispossessed of firearms unnaturally were using them anyway in the natural way that natural law permits. Which is interesting, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it, it shows you, I think, I always feel like there's a tide in, you know, I, I didn't say, I forget where this came from, but there's a tide in the affairs of man. I think it was, uh, and, and, you know, we we, we tend to uh, engage in conduct that is natural, you know, and it's Absolutely. natural to defend yourself. And Absolutely. You're not going to, you're not going to refrain from doing that because mm-hmm. of the color of your skin. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, you might even do it more because of the color of your skin if, if you're going to be a victim of a lynching, for instance. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Willie, what did your parents, uh, how did they raise you with regards to gun ownership? Did they talk about it at all? Was it a a subject within your household? Uh, Did your dad ever shoot military background, anything like that? It was never a uh, conversation in my household. Uh, Later in life, I did discover that my my mom owned a uh, firearm. Mm -hmm. Um, I was probably in my 40s at that time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, she had it for protection as we sat and talked about it. Um, so as she got older and began to suffer from dementia, uh, of course, our concern became making certain to remove that firearm from the household. Uh, she'd already, in fact, taken care of that and had given the firearm to a family friend who was uh, enlisted um, in our military at the time. Uh, so it had been safely removed from the home. But... To answer that in, in full, uh, mom and dad never discussed, in my knowledge, firearms uh, ever. Uh, whether that was a discussion that they had with my older sisters, I honestly don't know. By the time I came along, it's like, uh, he's on his own. He's a boy. He'll, he'll defend himself. He'll bite or fight or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but we never had conversations about it. Um, there were I do remember one instance when dad came home from work. And, and he was livid. I mean, he was angry. And, of course, as a kid, you see your parents angry and you wonder, you know, what has gone wrong in the world? And he said, I want to kill him. And that's, that statement just stood out. Because if you ever met my dad, he's the guy that you want to come to dinner. He's the guy that you want to sit down and just have a conversation with. He's this guy that if you scuff your knee, you want him to give you that comforting word of reassurance that it's okay, it'll scab over, you'll be absolutely fine without scolding you for being clumsy, goofy, weak, for crying or or whatever it is. Uh, So a very passionate individual. So to have him come home and want to exact such violence on another individual, uh, I couldn't help but wonder, you know, what went wrong. And again, it was just the turmoil of the dysfunction of that racial environment. Uh, I'll I'll pivot just a little bit. One of the grocery stores in our neighborhood, a little five and dime family owned grocery store, daylight grocery store um, owned by the daylight family. 
that was a beacon of of hope for me because here you here you had this white family in a black neighborhood and the kindness that was shown every single day by to anyone who walked through the doors was just amazing. The fact that there were blacks from the neighborhood that I thought were very disruptive kids because they seemingly were always getting into something, worked there and were on their best behavior whenever I went into the store. It was like talking to a different kid. And once a kid left that store, (laughs) whether they're stocking shelves or what have you, I mean, they were holy hell on the playground, let alone in the classroom. But in that store their manners were on point. So the family, I wouldn't say were disciplinarians, but they provided a sense of safety and encouragement to us kids that was just unheard of in our world because we have very limited interactions with folks other than black folks in my neighborhood. If I can go a little bit farther down that timeline... When Dr. King was assassinated, the store was burnt down. And Mm -hmm. for those of us who really depended on their kindness and the immediacy of being able to just walk down to the corner grocery and get all of your basic needs met, it was absolutely devastating. But what was reassuring was the fact that that family rebuilt that store in that neighborhood. They were an anchor in the neighborhood for many years, seemingly generations, until development happened. Um, and sometimes we all fall victim to development and gentrification. And and I'll back up just a little bit to say that this store and this neighborhood was seated in a neighborhood that had lots of dirt roads. So growing up in that community outside of my house is a dirt road. Uh, the road next to it is a dirt road. And you could take a global shot and see nothing but dirt roads So when the roads were finally paved, it was absolutely magic, absolutely magic. But that was also a clear sign of development. So eventually that store went under because it was bought out. Um, Major highways, major lanes went in. And there is a night and day difference looking at that neighborhood now versus the neighborhood that I remember uh, growing up. Uh, so there, there is a bit of sadness, but then there is also hmm. a little bit of delight because there is development. There was opportunity for growth. There was opportunity for income. Um, it, it, I wouldn't say it's a win-win because I love going back home, but there's no returning to the home that I remember in my youth. Well, it's sort of interesting. So everybody, we all have our sort of anecdotal experiences growing up. And it's funny, I, I didn't touch a gun at least that my parents knew about, other than like somebody had one, I had my hand on it as a kind of kid. But my, we, I didn't grow up with guns in my house. Um, far from it. I mean, it, it just not at all. Nowhere mm-hmm. around it. I, I didn't start shooting and hunting until maybe 2010-ish uh, and then fell in love with it. And, you know, it, I started to hunt and, and I found a lot of joy in that. But uh, And then there's pockets. If you go uh, different parts of the rural parts of the country, you're going to find a lot more gun ownership perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think now white suburbia I just sort of sense that there's an anti-gun environment going on. It's almost like a backlash. So the people who had guns before don't want them now and don't want anybody else to have them either. And where do you think the black community is on that as a, as a general, because uh, I, I just see mm-hmm. all the anti-gun, all this, usually when you're, you're the people getting interviewed on TV, it's always sort of these white 
sort of vanilla communities? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that is a wonderful question because, um, and this is me smiling. I know you can't hear it, see it, but it's happening. <laughs> this is me smiling when I think of the growth and gun ownership and the black community, which has gone up substantially. Um, this is my smile going down a little bit when I think of some of the reasons as I talk to people. And some of the reason is is based on fear. Um, mm-hmm. and, it's, and it's in response to some of the things that we see in here politically. Um, I don't want to bash one candidate or the other, but it, it's sad when people feel like their next best step is to grab a firearm because of political climate. It's good when people who previously didn't own guns go out and buy guns, take the opportunity to educate themselves, train themselves, and begin understanding that a lot of what they hear with regards to the negative talk about guns is largely, profoundly untrue. Um, And I think it really opens the door to conversation about mental health. So even for those folks who are new to the gun-owning community, it brings into question, I would hope, for them, am I buying it because I'm gun crazy or am I buying it because I feel like I have a need for self-preservation? And with that, am I willing to educate myself? And then when I see things that happen in the news, uh, some aspect of violence, mass shooting, am I able to fully separate myself from that individual because I look at it not from a gun ownership standpoint, but from a mental health standpoint, And to expand on that a little bit more, when I look at gun violence in communities of color, again, am I able to separate myself from from that act and look at it from a standpoint that that is one actor, not a representative of this community? Um, You know, it suffices to say that in many communities of color, there is a heightened sense of fear and personal safety concerns. And that is, in my opinion, largely based on the economics, the social conditions around those environments, not based on ethnicity. Well, it's almost absurd to think anything else, right? I mean, I I, I cannot accept that because somebody has a certain skin color that they're going to be more prone to go kill somebody with a gun. I mean, it just, it's, that makes zero sense to me. Absolutely. So there's, there's stuff going on in the community or not going on in the community right. where that kind of violence is happening, both white and black, I would think. I mean, Absolutely. look, look the, the, both anybody is susceptible to it. And, you know, when you're talking about gun ownership, back to the, this notion of unity, it got me thinking about it. It's like, I think it's awesome that if, there, if the black community starts to get uh, interested in gun ownership and doing it responsibly, but not because they're black, but just because they're Americans. Yes. Right? You know, yes. and it's like, the more of us that do that, the more likely we're going to preserve this very precious right that we have. Yeah, I think anyway. Uh, Steve, I'm I'm delighted that you said that. Um, <laughs> I wave that banner all the time, and and I wave it from a just a raw numbers standpoint. That if you had forty thousand people who were needed, really needed, to vote in favor of passing a bill that supported gun rights, but only 25,000 of those folks were, well, how can I best word it? Only 25,000 of those folks were white and the balance of them were black. Would it matter? Again, we're all gun enthusiasts. 
does it matter with regards to their ethnicity if they're black or white? Does it matter mostly that they're gun enthusiasts? And I'm not verbalizing it the way I'd like to verbalize it. No, but it, your point but, is it just it, it doesn't matter what color they are. It's like as long as we all are uh, for that one cause, yeah. the number of votes can be comprised of whoever. It doesn't make absolutely, any difference. Absolutely. It, in, even if, you know, I think, and what I like also is this notion of sort of crossing political aisles with this issue because it seems to me, and maybe Derek, you can chime in on this a little bit too, because it seems to me that our society has divided this into Republican Democrat thing. So it is, and which is equally absurd. I mean, it's just nuts to me. So I don't care who, for whom you pull the lever. It makes no difference to me. Um, just because you identify as a Democrat doesn't mean you're not allowed to have a gun and enjoy it and learn how to use it. But I know in Derek's litigation, he's seeing all sorts of, of backlash about it. I find in, um, in truth, um, it's blind, right? It is. I've had a lot of uh, what I'll say modern liberal friends or, or uh, de- modern day Democrats that have uh, been very pro-gun on that issue. Once they start to think about the logic of it and really apply an analytical framework to the right, into the history of the right, I find that a good majority of them, even some of my most rapidly progressive left-leaning friends, I mean, I'm talking about super liberal, they own guns. You know, they have at least one gun. Uh, so I think there's some common sense to it. Um, so I think it does cross those those racial boundaries. And that's not even an issue largely in today's society from a gun standpoint and gun ownership standpoint. I, I mean, I know that the left media wants to paint gun owners as these rabid uh, Southern sometimes or just hillbilly Northerner white people out there flying their Confederate flags with their rifles. But that's just not the case anymore. In addition to the black community, the female community has had a huge uprising in gun ownership as well, um, which is also something that makes me smile as well. My my wife, maybe Willie, you can tell her, sorry, actually carrying the gun, (laughs) but I've gotten her some training, but she doesn't want to carry the gun. But women as well, I've I've really modern day gun ownership. It concerns me because hunting. If you look at the statistics, Steve, it's it's going down. No, it's it's Mm -hmm. dying Mm -hmm. fast. It's dying and fast. It, it, it worries me. I'm, I mean, I'm not a prolific hunter, but that culture does worry me dying away. And the understanding in this younger generation of this right and the need for it. It's not a, just about guns. It's not about the cool factor. It's not about hunting. There is a specific reason that the founding fathers established or, or enshrined that right, if you will, that was given to us either whatever you believe, either by God or natural law. Um, you know, the Second Amendment is not, in fact, my right. My right is given by a higher power. I mean, it, it, the, the Bill of rights is, is just enshrining those rights, right? So um, anyhow, I'm digressing. That was good. I, I'm enjoying the digressing. Um, y- you know, you're absolutely right with regards to women gun ownership. Those numbers have gone up substantially over the, uh, the last yeah. four years or so, uh, which is fantastic in my opinion. Um, and the notion that we have somehow, I shouldn't say we, some ones have su- been very successful in politicizing gun ownership. Because um, I would definitely venture to say there are a lot of Democratic gun owners out there, uh, but they tend to want to keep their head low. There mm-hmm. are a lot of elected officials that are Democrat who will not stand in front of a microphone and talk about gun ownership and the thrill of gun ownership and the delight and the importance of maintaining that for fear of losing constituents when it comes to reelection time. So, again, that's that's tragic for all of us. But what's more tragic is for gun owners not to step forward and be very vocal uh, about gun ownership, about the importance of it, 
for fear that they'll be ostracized in some way. You know, we, we cannot afford not to have conversations about gun ownership, the importance of it, hunting, the importance of it for fear of being marginalized and pushed aside. Uh, and and yeah. I'm sad but true. I see it happening time and time again. Uh, I, for one, don't steer away from it. If people are uncomfortable about it, I'll decrease my conversation to a couple of minutes versus, say, a half an hour chat with them. But mm-hmm. I don't avoid the conversation. Well, and I, I don't it, it normalizing quick, it, right? And I don't think it's I don't think it's it's necessarily a gun issue, Steve or Willie. I, I think it's just a cultural issue. It's not just on guns. Our our society has become so polarized and tribal, you can't have a conversation with somebody for fear of being canceled. Well, there's this there's this there's this list of issues on the left that you have to ascribe to if you're gonna call yourself a Democrat. And there's this list of issues on the right that mm-hmm. you have to ascribe to if you're gonna call yourself a Republican. And, you know, nowhere in between shall they meet. You know, it's like, it's so stupid that you just, and, you know, I think on some level, and, you know, I I think that just watching, I think it applies more to the left. I see this happen more. I think people just, they don't think through the agenda items and instead of a a, a philosophy of life or their own, developing Mm -hmm. their own thoughts and and, uh, concerns about any individual thing. They yeah. just they take the easy route. Well, this is the this is the ticket. This is where we go. Yeah. These are all the things I have to believe without really giving them thought. Absolutely. And um, I, I, both sides do it, but I, I've I've argued with more people on that side who tend to do that more. They haven't really got. And then you know what you hear all the time? It's like, yeah. oh, you know, that's a good point. I haven't really thought about that. Yeah. And it happens a lot with firearms. It does. It, it's it's like, <laughs> it, you know, it, it's it, there's so much more to it. And then. It's funny. I was we were talking before we went on the air, Derek. I was down sighting in a long range rifle because I'm taking elk hunting, and it, it, it dawned to me as we were talking here this notion of freedom. And you know, there are other countries, England, for instance, where you can have a gun, but you got to go check it in and get it at a club and do your different thing. And we were you were talking about hunting and you were talking about uh, sort of recreational shooting. And mm-hmm. I, I enlisted the help of somebody who was an enthusiast long range shooter. Okay, and you know, he met me down on, on my buddy's property. We were out where it was perfectly safe to shoot long range. But it dawned on me as I was sitting here, there could easily be a world, guys, where we live in that I couldn't do that. I would have oh. to go find a club, find a range, go way out of my way to do it, check in my gun, do this, do that, and I wouldn't have done it. Right. I just would have avoided it. It would have been a pain in the ass, and I would mm-hmm. never have done it. Mm-hmm. I was on somebody's private property learning how to pull the trigger correctly, yeah. learning how to set up a scope correctly, learning how to breathe before I shoot correctly, learning the prone position of shooting. And then when I had a problem with a scope um, Saturday, I was able to go around the corner to a local gunsmith and he fixed it right up for me and I was back in doing it again. Mm-hmm. And you know, See, that, that world, that world exists in certain States. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's good when you're more liberal States. You can't do things like that. that mm-hmm. and, and that's insane to me. That, I mean, the freedom to do that, it it's sort of like uh, asking a fish if they live in water. I didn't. I took it completely for granted that I was able to do that. I, I had an attorney from Illinois. He lives in Chicago. That went pheasant hunting with us Saturday. He had some work he had to take care of in Philadelphia. He actually drove four hours out of his way to drop off the shotgun at my house in Ohio on his way to Philadelphia, and then came back on his way home and went shooting with me simply because of the regulation on the gun. Wow. So it's just dealing with that, you know, it's such a pain in the ass. But I'm like, I told him, like, Bill, move to Ohio. <laughs> We're land of the free here. We can do whatever we want for the most public firearms. <laughs> I've said that to my nephew, move from New Jersey, move to Ohio. Just sell your property. <laughs> just come on. Now I, I want to go back and talk culturally again because you talked about shotguns in in uh, 
in uh, pickup truck windows. I was having a conversation with somebody earlier, um, earlier today, actually, about this. And, you know, when I was a kid, I had, uh, I didn't have one, but a lot of guys in my school, they would have shotguns in the back rack of their pickup trucks. And now when people think of that, they look back on that sort of saying, like, those are just old hillbillies. Those are, that's the lynch mob or that's that. But it was really just a culture of kids who were wanted to leave school as quickly as possible so they could get to the cornfield or so they could get to the, their hunting spot in the woods mm-hmm. as fast as they could. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, you know, they, it, it had nothing to do with anything other than that. Right. And yet we were totally comfortable with it on yep. school grounds with a shotgun. We were totally comfortable with them leaving. Oh, heck, getting the whole deer week off, you would get off for school. It wouldn't even be an, an unexcused absence. So now we look at that culture and sort of and frown upon it a little mm-hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I think it would be helpful if we went back to that. And um, both races, really, or all oh, races. You absolutely. Know? Absolutely. Like, I, and you know what else I see more along those lines is I see more – folks, more minorities, more people of color on YouTube uh, with their own little hunting shows. Yeah. I'm seeing that more yeah. and more and more. I saw an Asian guy out and he was teaching people how to gut a deer or something. I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. that's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and why should it be for me? Again, we're all just Americans, but you, I, I sort of watch for that stuff. And the more people doing it, the better. Well, you know, I, I, I love what you're saying, Steve. Uh, I love it from a standpoint that there there's a culture that's largely underrepresented. Uh, growing up in the South, it was not uncommon for us to slaughter our own pigs, to slaughter our own um, chickens. Yeah. Almost said cows, and I'm visualizing a chicken. That's a totally different animal. Yeah, that's a, that's a um, leap. <laughs> that's a big leap. Um, but what's happened over time is the doors have opened so that we can indeed, uh, people of color, show that and be broadly accepted that it's not so foreign uh, because it was a way of it was a way of existing um, it wasn't easy to go down to the corner market and, and get what you need not if you had a little bit of, bit of property and you had some wildlife you took care of yourself and that's not foreign still right here in the US happens all the time yep. we just often don't see it and we often don't appreciate it but one of the things that we have to do is not hide it we have to talk about it and the sad truth of it is we have to talk louder than what the popular or mainstream media allows us to discuss. Or, or they would or hate validate. this conversation. Yeah, they, would, absolutely. they would absolutely detest this conversation. They feel it's barbaric, but you know, look at the meat industry. I mean, look at what's happening to sustain life in general. Uh, animals are really raised to be slaughtered, and they're slaughtered in mass, in massive warehouses, yet you have a large population of people who have built their livelihood on going out, hunting, capturing, processing that meat, that animal, growing their vegetables in their backyard, capturing their rainwater, uh, basically living off the land very effectively. And no one seemingly asks their opinions of what's reasonable with regards to hunting, with regards to self-sufficiency. Instead, what we see sadly happening is cases where there is a mass shooter and then a large sector of people says, see, that represents gun ownership. Yeah. And they totally ignore for centuries all the things that have, that have been going right with regards to gun ownership and respectful gun ownership throughout this nation. And it's been going right 
for folks who are white, who are black, who are Asian, who are Latin, who have immigrated from other countries and now call the U.S. home and have been getting it right day after day after day after day. So you have hundreds of thousands or millions of people who have been doing the right thing in this country and appreciating gun ownership. And then you have a handful of folks who have been bad actors and continue to get an amazing amount of press. Yep. You know, it's like looking at a group of folks who are just doing an outstanding oh. job in the work environment, and then you have the one person who posts a selfie that goes viral. You want to tell me that yeah. the world exists around millions of successful and it, selfies? And it's not even it's not even all the gun violence. It's only a certain like like the media will narrow in on like the mass shootings, which really statistically it's it's horrible. So people are gonna people could clip this out and make it sound worse than what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is statistically a mass shooting is a, is a pretty rare bird. But every day in the cities on both sides of town, all over, I'm not going to make it about race. Right, there right. are people shooting each other with handguns. Absolutely, every day, all day. Absolutely, the media doesn't talk about that. Mm-hmm. They 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 tend to focus only on like the AR-15 toting. Uh, you know, militant-looking white dude who's running around shooting up uh, whatever, yep. and uh, you know, which I, I, good it should get news and it should be frowned upon, and we should do whatever we can to do whatever to we can it. do to stop it mm-hmm. and and prevent whatever caused it. But it's only half the battle. There's a better argument out there. You know, it's like start 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 focusing on all gun violence. At least be intellectually honest about it. Yeah. And again, it still falls short. It's still a yard short or a hundred yards short, really. Um, because the gun that you carry and the gun that I carry, I'll never commit a crime with, and you'll never commit a crime with, and Derek's never going to commit a crime with his gun. And most of the people out there aren't going to commit crimes with their guns. Precisely. So you could say logically, I've always said this, you could say logically, if we could wave a magic wand and get rid of every gun in the world, well, you wouldn't have any more gun violence. It would be replaced with something, but you wouldn't have any more gun violence. Sadly, we can't do that. That's right. right. Sadly, we can't do that. That's right. So stop living in Never Never Land, yep. and let's start addressing what's really going on. And that's what I love about what you guys do is you get people at the range, mm-hmm. or, and you're, you're talking about people at the range with their kids, teaching them how to use it responsibly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Instead of turning it into this evil thing that if the kids touch it, they'll, they'll mm-hmm. turn to stone mm-hmm. or something, you know? Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, really intrigues me and, and maybe it's just a personal challenge, is how do we migrate beyond the rhetoric? And, and, and I don't want to totally focus on the media here, but you have that one bad actor. And then the focus, of course, shifts to the firearm that was used. Yeah. Little focus, little attention, little conversation goes to the mentality of the p- person who committed that crime. Instead, we talk about gun bans, and it's based on the weapon that was used to commit such a heinous act. Um, Little discussion, again, about the heinous acts. You know, you mentioned uh, crime in communities, lots of gun violence. And in my opinion, the reason why we don't have lots of reporting on that is that it would force people to work harder to get to the root cause of it. Because Mm -hmm. you can't talk about gun-on-gun violence in neighborhoods, black, white, and other, without discussing the underlying reasons behind where all of that did it devices. break down yes and it's usually the mirror yes you know i, I hate to say that it, you know it's usually the household mirror you mm-hmm. know it's like it gets down to that level it's not the guy taking his son to the range it's the son out on his own learning bad stuff on his absolutely. own. absolutely right absolutely and that that's where you're right i don't think we want to have that conversation as a society 
I, I really like it when the politicians, I mean, the main killer, I mean, this is a good example. What's the first thing that the Biden administration came out and said? Kamala Harris started praising Australia's gun control laws and the confiscation process they went through. You don't have any idea of the underlying facts is why this guy did what he did. And that's the answer. Yeah, that's what we go to right away, because it, it sounds good. It's a sound bite, and inflames your base. You don't want to resolve the problem. You want the problem to persist so you get elected. That's what you really want. Yeah. Let's just call it for what it is and stop bullshitting us, because I will guarantee you most middle Americans aren't that naive. I'm not. And I know Steve's not. And I know Willie's not. Absolutely not. And the last time I looked, we did not have a large population of Aboriginal individuals here. Uh, (laughs) So to I mean, I'm being a little. So we're not Australia. How how could you begin to have that as a comparison? I mean, really? It's different culture. We we have a constitution. We have the Second um, Amendment. Night and day different. People tell me that. Yeah, but England does. I was like, yeah, we left. when was the last right, time yeah. you walked the streets Divorced of Central Ohio? For a reason. Yeah, yeah, we left. They had a king too. We left. Yeah, I'm not trying to remarry England. That's not what I want. So. Yeah. Hey, look, Governor. There's a Bobby over there. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, Willie, uh, we kind of talked about your history a little bit. I- I'm curious what it's like to be just a gun owner now, just an everyday gun owner. I mean, I can talk about it, but my standpoint is, is I do this for a living. I know all the laws in and out, uh, you know. But what's it like just to be an average Joe? working guy in, in central Ohio owning a gun. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, okay. It's going to sound crazy, but I, I can honestly say it is cool. Um, <laughs> and I say that from a standpoint that there are a number of my friends and family members. When I share with them that I'm a gun owner, sometimes there's like a pregnant pause on their part because they're not right. certain what to say. Yeah, yeah. There's the shock and awe from some. There's a surprise from others from a standpoint that they they have to kind of balance like, well, wait a minute. I thought all gun owners were bad and I and I really like you and I value you and I trust you. So if if you're a gun owner, um, maybe my frame of reference is off, you yeah, know, so it's, it's all out of whack. Yeah. Right? So it's really intriguing. And the other part of that is I've just been delighted to get into just wonderful conversations. You know, the other day at work, I was uh, selling personal defense ammo to a couple and we were just talking about the different options that are there. Um, The level of information and knowledge that comes with gun ownership, not only about what you own and what you may desire to buy, but the whole operation of that instrument itself is absolutely fascinating. I'm a science geek. And I love understanding and knowing how things work and all the intricate parts. Mm -hmm. Um, So there are times when people are gun phobic. I enter in conversation about just the physics of it all. How it works. Yeah. Yeah. And and I try to have it non-threatening by often pivoting to a rocket. So imagine building a rocket in your garage. And when you ignite that engine and it takes off. Basically, you have this controlled explosion that would rip your house apart. However, all of that explosive component, that fuel is contained within an enclosure that is so rock solid that when the pressure builds up, instead of exploding out in all directions, it's allowed to escape in only one direction. And because it's coming out in that one direction, you have propulsion, kind of like a jet airplane. So now it's being forced or 
push by the laws of physics in one direction. So, so that's what happens in that cartridge when that primer is ignited and that gunpowder goes off. And that bullet is then pushed down the barrel and it doesn't explode the barrel. And then if you add some little grooves inside, some rifling as it's called, it allows it to spin. I immediately then pivot to football. I said, you've probably, whether you're a big football fan or not, have seen someone throw a perfect pass and that ball is just spinning and spiraling and it just stays on target. I said, imagine all of that. The human mind created and engineered all of that in various stages and it developed over time thanks to technology and ingenuity. Um, So I think for a lot of us as gun enthusiasts, if we find ways of pivoting from when you say gun and people think violence, if you say gun and allow them to begin thinking about mechanics, about physics, about design, um, there's a different level of understanding, right? Now, I'm not saying that that's going to trigger within them within them this desire to rush out by a firearm and begin enjoying that gun ownership process and target shooting. But it will open the door to conversation about what that gun means to you. Because when you begin to make it personal, that exchange of conversation between two people versus allowing somebody else to control the narrative uh, that says gun slash violence versus gun slash tool, it's a whole different conversation. Yeah. And and often it is very much based in the messenger. Um well, and again, I think a lot of it goes back to those like check check the box talking points that we just have to believe this without ever really digging into it to see what you're believing. And then, right. you know, I think something else you described is is sort of part of a particularly I think young boys. We just like to take stuff apart, yep. and and guns guns are great for that, right? I mean, it's like all these pieces, and it's like you can lay it out in front of you, and it's like a puzzle putting it back together. I mean, it is neat. It's it's it a is. neat little thing. And as a kid, I used to build model guns. Like the, like the ones that were made out of metal that you could put together. And I, mm-hmm. I learned a lot about revolvers and how a semi-automatic worked doing that. And, you know, there, it's, I think we're just drawn to doing mechanically mechanical stuff like that, which is why I think it's so fascinating that you go about teaching people from that angle mm-hmm. because it, it sort of taps into something that we all have internally by, and it bypasses the fear. Okay. And, and, and I agree. Um, and I was hoping that, my conversation with a former colleague that I could bypass her fear of the AR-15. You know, when she said, you know, do you own one? I said, yes, I do. She says, well, I don't think anyone should own an AR. The better question is how many do you own? <laughs> <laughs> That's, yeah. Not enough. Right. Um, so I, I <laughs> share you know with, the answer's wrong. <laughs> right, right. Well, I share with her, or asked her, I said, you know, are you interested in banning the AR-15 because of what you've seen in the media with regards to, say, a mass shooting? Or are you interested in banning that firearm because of an operational flaw, of a price point? You know, what is it? Because if you, if your reason for desiring to ban it is only based on an individual's violent act, do you think that's a fair assessment of that tool? I mean, make any sense at all? I mean, let me remind you: there was one time that authorities were challenged because you had this guy in New York bashing people in the head with a hammer. And I'm, you know, Stanley Tools didn't come forward and say, well, we're going to have to remove the hammer from the market. Yeah, we need to eliminate those. Or a table, I have a short finger from a table saw, right? Right. So, 
you know, it's a dangerous tool. A gun can be a very dangerous tool if used improperly. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. And, that, you know, that's I, that's the lesson to take away. I did a, uh, after the Sandy Hook shooting, I was invited on the local Channel 7, um, and I did a debate, Steve. It was me and Ken Hansen, God rest his soul. He's passed since. He was a gun rights attorney in town. And then there was uh, two people on the uh, opposing side. One was... I can't remember to- Toby Hoover, maybe might have been her name. I can't remember. She was, uh, I think, the president of the Ohio Coalition Against Gun Violence, and there was another progressive that was there. And I remember afterwards, a gentleman in the audience who was very educated. I think he met a professor at the university or something. Came up and and started asking about AR-15s, and and I, I you could just see a light bulb go off when I said, "Think about it. It's just like any other any other semi-automatic rifle." He's like, well, "What do you mean?" I'm like, "Well, this is how it functions." And like this light bulb went off. He's like, I never thought about it that way. And I'm hoping maybe I changed his mind to reconsider this blanket, like Willie is talking about, this blanket antagonistic mm-hmm. uh, worldview toward AR-15 simply because how the media portrays it. And, and I hate, by the way, the term assault rifle. Uh, and I hate right. that gun owners nowadays are even using it because yes. it's not. Yeah. By the way, just so we're clear, whoever's listening, if anybody's listening that doesn't know anything about guns, AR does not stand for assault rifle. Thank so you. we're clear. Armor light <laughs> rifle. Yeah. Yep. My very first AR was an actual AR-15, by the way. So... <laughs> Um, but anyhow, you know, point point taken, Steve um, and Willie, that, yes, you know, we as gun owners have a responsibility to also educate the general public because the media does not do it. Well, my the one friend I have, who he was the first to get his uh, license to carry a concealed handgun. And we all went on a fishing trip and he took his pistol out of his pocket and he stuck it on the TV. And I didn't care. But one of the other guys was sort of like, come on, why are you bringing it? And he just looked around. And he goes, that gun is not going to do anything this entire trip. It's not going to shoot. It's not going to go off. It's not going to leave that TV until I put it back in my holster and take it home. That mm-hmm. That's all that's going to happen with that. Mm-hmm. So that's all we need to talk about. And yeah. that, that was it. It shut everybody up. It's like, it's not going to do anything. It's just going to sit there. And you don't need to get up and pull the trigger. You don't need to get right. up and tinker with it. You don't need to do any of those things. And uh, I think if more people, that was a very... Uh, Poignant lesson for me because mm-hmm. I, I wasn't shooting yet, but I was like, you know what? That's a really good logical point. Yeah. The only way that gun's going to hurt anybody is if somebody gets it, pull, points it at somebody, and pulls the trigger. Yep. I couldn't agree more. You know, I have uh, members of my family that are gun enthusiasts and then those that are very gun opposed. Uh, one in particular, uh, my sister, one of my sisters, is very anti gun. Guns frighten the daylights out of her. And the reason for that is she shared it with me, and I didn't find this out until about six years ago, that in her youth, uh, while playing with a childhood friend, she was maybe 10, 11 years old. So the friend goes inside, she's got to use the restroom, and it's taking him quite a bit. So she goes in after him uh, in his parents' place and discovers him laying on the floor. Um, Unfortunately, he'd found his parents' firearm, discharged it, and she sees now the child that she's played with for who knows how long as a kid who's totally disfigured facially uh, from this firearm. One can imagine the impact of that. And that's a conversation, a similar conversation that I've had with my son um, in light of some of the school shootings and parents coming out in mass and others uh, insisting on removing all guns from society. And I have shared with him, I said, you know, it's, it's impossible, it's impractical for any of us as decent human beings to look at those individuals or even rationalize that if you're just minding your own business, whether you're an adult or a child, and someone you care about or someone you've never met 
has now been a victim of gun violence. And, and you see the effects of that on the human body. It's a horrific sight. You know, if you tune that out and have no re- emotional response whatsoever, I would question your mental state of being. But it does not mean that guns and their whole are bad. It does mean the person who committed that act is not someone that you want over for Sunday dinner, uh, bottom line. Yeah. And I said, we, we have to learn and encourage one another how to isolate that reality. There is the after effect of violence that if we see it with our own eyes or hear about it, it's absolutely horrific. But it does not mean that we hold accountable any and everyone who owns a firearm. I have yet to meet a gun owner who's in favor of gun violence. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I've, that, never, I've never met one either. Exactly. Right. You know, are, are we interested in self-preservation? Absolutely. That's a natural right. Yeah. Um, so I guess to the extent that if I can perceive a moment in time when somebody were attacking me, I would use a gun to protect myself. So I could call that gun violence, but not aggressive violence, right? So, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not anything that you're seeking to go out and do without being engaged. And 90%, and I say 90%, not 99.9, of people that I've spoken to who are uh, gun owners figure they would only use their gun in, as a last resort, mm-hmm. right, when there is no other options. There are some that I've spoken to who said, hey, i I'm just afraid. You know, I may go to jail for shooting, but I'll probably shoot and ask questions later. So you have, you know, there are people out there who will trigger and scream wolf, even when there is no real wolf, but they just heard a growl. And then there are others that will make certain that that threat is credible before they act. Yeah. And I think, I think even the people who would say that, like I'm going to, I'd rather err on the shy side of shooting and I'll have to just deal with it. I, I think when, when the time comes, I still don't think most people are going to be doing that. No. I think quite the opposite. And I, you know, Derek, one of the things when Ohio went to a, what we call constitutional carry, which is really a, a misnomer, but when Ohio went to this, this notion where we can all carry a concealed handgun, even if we don't go take a class, get a permit and do whatever. The one thing that I think we even talked about on our show was, all right, I'm 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 a little worried about like road rage. You know, I was a little concerned about that. I was a little bit concerned about a, a fist fight turning into a knife fight turning into a gunfight. Mm-hmm. But you know what? I really haven't seen much evidence of that, or at least it's not been on the news. And you know, it would be if it were true. Absolutely. Like I'm not seeing gunfights mm-hmm. on the highway. I um, I remember when when what I call permitless carry passed because we don't derive our rights to self owner self gun ownership from the Constitution it comes from natural law, but nevertheless, they call it constitutional carry, but permitless carry, as I call it, when that passed, there was a lot in the gun community, Steve, that said that, you know, they espouse, we got to have training. And yeah. I think a lot of it was self, you know, self-serving, right. Especially, um, and pay me to do it. Right. Yeah. Right. You got to pay me to give you, and I've always been an advocate <laughs> of getting rid of the permitting system. And it has nothing to do with this. I don't believe in training. I above anybody probably even listening to this show, I spent tens of thousands of dollars on personal training. Mm-hmm. I mean, down at Tactical Defense Institute and with Sierra Training Group and other private instructors. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of money on my personal training because I enjoy it um, <clears throat> far more than a, a law enforcement officer generally does by uh, every stretch of the imagination. So with that said, 
uh, when permitless carry passed, there was a lot of people screaming, hooting and hollering. But I've always believed that what it creates, Steve, is a false positive in the concealed carry holder's mind. Oh, I took an eight-hour class from the NRA. I'm perfectly qualified to carry a gun. And you are qualified to carry a gun. Mm -hmm. And you should carry a gun because it's better than nothing. But I will tell you this. You're not an expert driver the day you get your driver's license. Right far. Right. right? So you're not going to go out and run NASCAR. Right. So the thing is, is that people – the community's got to self-police and there's more to gun ownership than just taking an eight hour class and being done with it. So by getting rid of that, it, it to me, it takes out that false positive in these people's minds and really allows these people to say, well, maybe I should get some training. I'll investigate it. And they're probably going to get better training than what was ever dictated by the state of Ohio, in my opinion. Well, I, I 100% agree. There's, there's all sorts of <clears throat> arguments you can make about state or government mandated training and certifications. I mean, it has its purpose, Mm -hmm. but it's also can be very limiting. And, um, you know, if I, if I go take a class with four other people, who's to know that I'm getting, that I need the same training they need, that they need, that they need. There's certain baselines, I guess, but there's all sorts of reasons to, um, tailor training to your own personal needs absolutely, and just engage in it. And I think the only way to do that is not to have the government force it, but to have conversations like this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Honestly, guys, I don't, and maybe I'm, I'm probably sitting with two guys that could help me with this. Like, I don't carry a can gun every day. Right. I right. don't do it. And people ask me why all the time. And I was like, look, I'm not, tra- I haven't done what Derek did. I'm mm-hmm. not trained up on it. And, and my biggest fear is I might have to use it. And people, I sort of beg the question when, I, when people ask that, but I'm like, look, why don't you carry it? Because I might have to use it. Wasn't well, that why you would carry it? Yeah, but I'm not, I don't feel qualified to do that. Yeah. And uh, I'll, I feel more than qualified to go hunt in the woods. I'm very safe and cautious about that. I'll go shoot at a range and I'll even keep one next to my nightstand. Because then I don't care if I'm qualified or not. I'm going to use it if somebody's in my house. But, um, I, you know, there's a responsibility there that I think we are all inherently capable of exercising. And if you, to your point, Derek, if you falsely tell people, now you're good enough to use it, mm-hmm. go forth and prosper, um, you, you might be, we might be doing people a disservice, really. I, I firmly believe that the first step to uh, carrying a gun is to get yourself in at least decent physical shape. <laughs> I think too many people invest all their money into gun training and, Maybe if you could run a mile, it might be healthier and you might go to ward off an assailant before you have to use a gun. Right. Um, so I, I do believe that our self-defense protocol should be holistic. I, I truly believe that uh, we should look at less than lethal force as well. You know, I've taken some basic, you know, martial arts classes just mm-hmm. to know how to use you know, basic moves. It doesn't have anything sophisticated. Mm-hmm. I, I carry a Fox Labs pepper spray. Uh, I've taken some knife fighting classes. I know how to use knives. I'm not an expert in any of this, by the way, but I know how to use it all, right? And I know at least how to uh, try to avoid taking a life if I have to. I, I served in Iraq and I have friends and buddies that have had to take lives. Thank God, you know, but for the grace of God, go I. I didn't have to do that. Um, I've come pretty close to it and I know what tunnel vision is like in combat. I mean, I'm a combat veteran. But it messes you up when you have to take a life, whether or not it's justified. And we should never rejoice in that. Right. Uh, so I, I truly believe that we should look at our self-defense protocols holistically and not just, oh, I get a concealed carry license and get a gun. There's more to it, you know, when you're getting into a fight or your life is in danger. Absolutely. So Absolutely. Well, let's shift gears. Are we allowed to talk about where you're working now and what you're doing? Uh, I don't have a problem with that. Uh, so I'm working at Vance Outdoors, which is an absolutely incredible store. Uh, been at which 18, one? Uh, this will be the one in uh, Obets. Okay, so love it. I was just and, there a couple um, weeks ago. Oh, excellent, excellent. You have to come back now that I'm there. I will. Uh, it'll improve your experience. <laughs> I'll improve your experience. Not that it was bad, um, but uh, floor sales associate is my work title. Uh, so I'm doing any and everything except gun counter and cashier and archery 
those would be the areas that I'm not involved in. Uh, and that's by choice. Well, I think, first of all, you have to be there a series of months before you're even allowed to sell a firearm. In other words, it's serious business. Uh, they yep. take gun ownership very seriously, uh, very proudly so. And they want to make certain that any associates that is selling a firearm to the public is coming from a significant base of knowledge. And uh, and that should be the case for any store, any outfitter out there. With regards to archery, um, I still consider that a very specialized environment, much like gun ownership. That's a high tech. That's, that's turned high tech. Ah, uh, you could. I, I know nothing about it. <laughs> yeah. I'll be the I, first to admit that. I know enough to be intrigued and uh, I would love to own a bow at some time. And I'm going to look for the, the training opportunity to get out there, see what it's all about, uh, pull one and decide whether or not I want to make that financial commitment and enter that arena. Uh, yeah. So that'll be fantastic. Welcome to the bottomless pit of, yes. of more spending. W- yes. Well, you came from academia, correct? I came from <laughs> academia in the technology realm. Um, I love knowing, as I mentioned, I love knowing how things work, how they're put together. So um, I've spent my career putting auditoriums together, classrooms, learning spaces, presentation areas, and training mm. the end user. Um one of the greatest lifts uh, in my career was COVID. Uh, hmm. So imagine, yeah, you know yeah. that reality for all, all of us, tra- right? All the remote stuff. Yeah. Oh, the the pivot that it demanded from mm-hmm. not only us from a tech support standpoint, but imagine uh, conversing with a group of faculty who are very skilled uh, in pedagogy, face to face, reading body language, and really delivering great content. And now you've got to help them create a learning environment in their home, right? With microphones, cameras, things yeah, of that it's nature. Difficult. It is difficult. And then you've got to explain <clears throat> to them that when you're teaching, the reason you keep getting bumped offline is your your two kids are playing Fortnite and gaming at home and you don't have the bandwidth <laughs> that we do here on campus. Right. Um, so you just kind of tell them, well, it's your house is kind of like a an alley. Whereas here on campus, it's like a seven lane highway. So, you know, it's, and it's a hard sell because you've got to explain very detailed, complicated technology to individuals who, who, who aren't stupid inept by any means, but you've got to leave all the tech jargon out of it. Right. I could have used you during COVID. I I taught, I I do teach at the law school, second amendment law and a variety of other classes. And I got to tell you, I'm much more dynamic in person. I, I did not yeah. like teaching over Zoom. It was terrible. <laughs> it's hard to it do. It just these students didn't want to engage. They just look yeah. like they're half asleep. You don't yes. know what to do. So if their cameras uh, are even on, if yeah. their cameras are even on, and it was just it was a nightmare. But uh, I, you, God bless you for doing what you did. Is did you ever run into bring, to bring it back to guns? I know we're getting sort of into the hour here. We're gonna have to wrap it up. But you know, you, you were in academia. You were at mm-hmm. the university level. Mm-hmm. Um, it sort of strikes me as a big void that we're not teaching a couple of things. Like we're not teaching guns and gun safety in schools. Right. And we're not teaching in a large part, like personal finance. You know, I think sometimes some, some high school or maybe uh, some two year degrees are starting to teach that, or maybe on the yep. side they're trying to, or churches a lot of times will teach personal finance. Yep. Um, but we're not teaching these sort of basic skills. And I, I would put firearm ownership and responsibility in that. Did, did you ever try to push for any of that? And what did you get back? Absolutely, I did. And uh, and I will, again, fault COVID for <laughs> putting the kibosh on that. Um, I had amassed 27 followers. And, and this is me talking to faculty, to staff, 
um, to the variety of employees on campus with regards to gun ownership and began forming an on-campus league, if you will. So our game plan was to go out, uh, get some training in, get some shooting in on on ranges, have some classroom time. We also have a a local police department um, on campus. Um, In talking with our officers, they were on board with providing some instruction. Admittedly, it would have to be done uh, outside of the campus because you couldn't carry on campus, right? So it would have to be done on their personal time. Because no shootings ever happen on campus, uh, right? That is correct. Right. And... (laughs) It wouldn't be officially endorsed by any means by the campus police department, and understandably so. It would be considered completely (coughs) recreational. It couldn't in any way reflect the name of the institution, whatever we wanted to call ourselves, uh, had to be completely removed. Uh, Then we began talking about, well, what about our our student population? How do we inform them? How do we encourage them? How do we organize them? Or or do we let them do their own thing? And it became a thing— it became important that we let them do their own thing because if you try to support and organize that student group, it's hard to remove. It, it gets a little muddy because you're a university employee and you're seeking to organize students, right? So in some regards, you're acting in an official capacity, yeah, I can yet see. unofficially. I mean, it was like very gray. Um, as conversation began building, there were students who actually lobbied to allow for students to carry on campus. There was massive pushback in that, and that's because the perception is if you get all bent out of shape because you can't access that website or game proficiently because of bandwidth on campus and you lose it whenever Wi-Fi is down, if crap hits the fan and you're carrying, kid, how can I trust you not to shoot through the drywall into that classroom or vice versa because you think it's, it's a good, clear shot? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of thought that we know goes into gun ownership, that we know goes into cover versus concealment. You know, yep. if you're doing the training, you're aware of all of those things. Um, for the layperson who are entering that environment of gun ownership without a whole lot of thought, without a whole lot of training, they become more of a danger to those around them and themselves as opposed to an asset. Um, So, yes, there was conversation on campus with regards to gun ownership amongst faculty, amongst the staff, and forming a group. COVID brought that to a screeching halt because getting together became very difficult. Yep. it bubbled up at the right time. The execution plan came at the wrong time. Yeah, it just seems like if there's ever going to be a breakthrough, it would be something like that. You know, yeah, it starts as a little club, and next thing you know, the club grows. And next thing you know, there's a little you get a, you get approval for a class. Maybe you get credit for a class. Absolutely. And uh, and then pretty soon you've sort of broken through those barriers, as opposed to an institution just saying, "No, all guns are bad. We're never going to have guns. We can't even can't even bring them on campus." But no. um, well, look, Derek, anything else we should cover? Willie, anything else you want to cover before we wrap it up? I, I just want to add a little note to yeah. that that point to end on. Um, going back, just reviewing my notes, I was amazed at the number of librarians on campus who were gun owners and, and won at well, that. Well, that's interesting. And I was, I was not amazed at the number of people in our athletic department who hmm. were gun owners and were looking for that fellowship. Um, so it was interesting just to find out who was who. Hmm. And who was willing to come on board? All right, but we gotta, the librarians we unpack that a little bit. So. The librarians were, hey, I'm telling you, folks, 
your librarian is a great asset, not only for reading, not only for writing, but those men and women can shoot. So there you go. I mean, I guess they got to have some patience, if nothing else. And then I can see the athletics. That that makes perfect sense, right? Because there's competition and there's like a there's a there's a challenge to it. But um, all right. Well, look, we had, this is Willie Franklin. You can catch him at uh, Vance's if you and he'll solve your. You were talking to somebody about ammunition questions. You're going to talk to somebody about different options with uh, some of the accessories and maybe one day get behind the counter. Absolutely. Uh, over at Vance's, that's uh, down at Obet's Vance's Outdoors. Uh, any other way to get a hold of you? you have a website or your gun club? Uh, gun club, Unity Gun Club. Check us out on Facebook. It is a wonderful organization. Lots of incredible men and women, uh, certified instructors, gun enthusiasts all over the place. You'll learn a lot. You'll have a lot of fun. And if you want to reach me directly, famegame42 at yahoo.com. All right. You heard it right here, Willie Franklin. Uh, Derek, I guess that'll wrap up another episode of Munitions Podcast. We'll get this one up and out as soon as we can. Uh, it is October 30, 2027. Uh, we should be back at you in the next two or three weeks with a, with another episode and maybe even another guest. So, Eric, Derek, anything more? No, that's all I got. I'm sure you all, all, all of our uh, listeners will hear from Willie again. Willie, I hope we have you back here real soon. Yeah. Loved it. Love it. All right. We'll see you guys next time. All right. Take care. Thank you.